This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I remember my dad coming home one day and saying, we've got this requirement now. I want everybody to go through the home and pull all the clothing, all of the garments that you have, everything that has the color red. And my mom had just, this is why it was really hard for me. I had just gotten a dress made. My mom had made me this dress with little red hearts all over it. And it was very well sewn. My mom was an, I put her to the standard, a really good seamstress. And she did, I just love this dress. And I think I got to wear it like maybe twice. And we had to throw it in a big garbage bag, all the things, toys and my dad's ties and hair things. And I mean, everything that even just had that color red in it, it was disposed of. I don't even know what they did with it. I don't even know. Wow. Mm, that's so like, hard as a little girl. So oh my word. Like, I remember crying at my mom and I just seeing that look on her face like, well, this is what we're asked to do. Welcome back, everyone. My name is Sam. And I'm Melissa. I grew up in the FLDS community. It is a polygamous group run by Warren Jeffs, and I moved out when I was 18 years old. I was raised LDS, Sam and I've been married for nine years now and have two awesome kids. Yes, we do. And just so you know, we do have a podcast available if you'd rather just listen in today. And please don't forget to like and subscribe. We are so excited and so honored today to have a special guest. We have Elise with us. Hi, Elise. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> we were we were so excited that you reached out. I know that we had talked before about the fact that we really want to wait till people are fully ready to share their stories. You know, we try to never push anybody into a vulnerable position because it takes so much courage and so much strength to share your story. And so we're just grateful that you reached out and that you're willing to trust us with helping you share your story. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And we want to start from the beginning of your story. I'm very happy and intrigued to hear your side of things because you were raised in the same community or in the FLDS church as I was. And But mm -hmm. obviously everyone has such a unique perspective, even within the same church. So I'm very excited to hear what your experience was like. Yeah. So I was born and raised in the FLES and my parents lived in the Salt Lake Valley. So in Sandy. And okay. so I'm the second oldest. I have one older brother. So that falls into the chronological uh, aspects of where I'm at. 
I'm one of 19 kids. From the same mother? No. Okay. I had two moms. Okay. <laughs> My mom had 13. Wow. And yeah. So when I was born, I was born in Hilldale. So okay. the Twin Cities, Colorado City, Hilldale. Yeah. was born at the maternity home. I wonder if the same maternity home, the one that was called Hilldale? <laughs> yeah. That the one? Like okay. the one that Aunt Lydia. Yes. Aunt okay. Lydia delivered me so you and you and i were born in the same place yeah okay. yep great so can I, I actually had a couple of mine there too <laughs> oh wow that's very yeah. interesting well we can't wait to yeah. get into that but part of your story as well were your parents also raised in the flds church yes so my dad grew up without his father after he was eight years old so his dad passed away and then his mom was one of i think four Oh. moms in his family and his side of the family. So his mom had four kids, two boys, two girls, and he's the baby boy. And he basically was raised in the New Mexico, Albuquerque area. He spent oh. a lot of his life there. So those who understand the time of the raid that's always talked about in the 1953 raid, mm -hmm. um, my grandma, so my dad's mom at that time relocated down there and she went into hiding and so basically the majority of my dad's upbringing was down there in albuquerque so he spent a lot of years down there where she kind of just raised her kids wow were there other women that also relocated there as well or was it just her I, was there a small community there i don't believe so i don't remember hearing any stories of any other women or men that were there Okay. Um, for whatever reason, I don't even really know why she was placed there or why she was, I don't even know if she chose to be there. I actually don't even know that side of it, that story. But my mom was born and raised here in Colorado City. Okay. So my dad had a lot to do with the community because his older sister, his oldest sister married my mom's dad. Oh, wow. When she was very young. I know this is, like, is going to be like my own grandpa. I am my own grandpa. Hey, kind of you've, heard, you've heard that song. Yay. <laughs> yes. Sam had to introduce me yes. to that song after we were married. He's like, haven't you ever heard that song? And I was like, no. And then now when we talk about family trees in the FLDS, sometimes he's like, well. It's a real, it's a real thing. Well, yeah. it's, it's, you can do it through marriage, but blood related, I, I think that's a little too far. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Um, my... So my aunt married my mom's dad. He, she was a plural wife. And I spent most of my upbringing around her. Like she helped raise part of my family, especially in my younger years. She was here in Colorado City. She had a home. And so my mom and my dad were arranged through the church the religion and were placed together my mom was 17 and my dad was 21 oh okay so still fairly close just two young people yeah that's nice yeah and okay. so and your mom was the first wife is that right mm -hmm. okay yes yes so your yep. your dad you say grew up in new mexico area your mom mm -hmm. grew up in short creek area yes. colorado city hilldale same place and so how did they come they were 
arranged like most marriages are in the FLDS. I, mean, I guess I should yeah. say all of them. So what happened there? Did she go to Mexico? Did they bring him to Short Creek? How did that work? He spent, he came to the priesthood meetings that they had. So the prophet at the time was Uncle Roy. Oh, yes. And he was in direct connection with him and communicated with him. Like he was encouraged to be in open connection with him. Of course, my dad's dad was one of the founding people of this community too. And so he, he was gone a lot though. He was a traveling insurance salesman. Oh, wow. Kind of a, like he did a lot of that. And so he was gone a lot. And so my grandma raising her kids very rarely got to even see him, talk to him, you know, back in the fifties, that was quite an ordeal to have wow. even a phone call, you know, Wow. especially in the rural area here in Colorado city, you know, Mm-hmm. But her being in New Mexico, it was a lot easier, but he was in hiding. She was in hiding. So a lot of the communication was very, very minute. It was almost non-existent. Wow. So, so this a was, lot of letters. Yeah. And you said they were in hiding. Can you explain why they were in hiding at that time? So the community here in Colorado City and Hilldale were, uh, I don't know what the word is. <laughs> they were raided mm-hmm. kind of like the one in Texas um, mm-hmm. where they were founded living polygamy and the community was taken apart. They were separated and segregated and physically shipped the women and the children into all areas of the state and far off. And the me- a lot of men were imprisoned and, some of the women were after so much time, you know, they were able to slowly one by one come back. So the prophet at the time, Leroy Johnson, which we called uncle Roy was his mission to gather every last person back to the community. Yeah. And so, which they did. And some of them, like my grandma ended up just staying put because I don't actually even know. <laughs> I would like to know. I I won't ever be able to ask her or I don't know if my dad knows, but for whatever reason, she stayed. I imagine it was a very, everything had to be done very secretive. I heard about these stories of uncle Roy rounding up everyone. Yeah. Rounding up everyone from the, all the different places, different States throughout the States. And, but it was all done very secretive because at that time Mm -hmm. practicing polygamy was a felony. And so it wasn't, you know, that was the whole reason that it was rated to begin with. Is that right? Yeah. I, I can only imagine on some level, a degree of what kind of pressure they were put under and having little babies and whole gads of them, you know, like just how to take care of them and the stress that you're put under somewhere unfamiliar and culture and people and not being able to live the way that you want to live. And I have a lot of empathy for, all of those people that went through all of that. That's right. heavy, heavy. So my mom and dad were through the prophet at the time were told you're going here, you're going here. And so they, they got to have a little bit of a, they knew of each other, obviously, because my dad's sister was involved in that community or in that family, I should say. Mm-hmm. And so my mom knew of him, not, intimately or like really had much to do with him just knew he existed knew he who he was Mm -hmm. and so 
um, when they got together, when they were told to, uh, it was quite typical for them to uh, go get a legal marriage done, which they were instructed to go do before they had the spiritual ceremony through the church. And so that's what they did. He came and picked her up and went and got the, the license done. And then they had their ceremony through the church. Interesting. Was that ceremony something that, because back in those days it was done a lot differently than it is, than it was during Warren's time before he was. Oh yeah. What was the ceremony yeah. and were people invited? How much do you know about that? Oh, yeah. was, it, was it a big family <laughs> event? I actually have the pictures. My mom was going to throw them away at one point. Fast forward. But I'm saying like, I got to have those pictures. I have all of them and I'm so happy that I Yay. kept them. Yay. And I was a little rebellious and not going to throw all that crap away. <laughs> oh, good for you. Like we were told to. I wish we had more pictures of Sam. We have like five pictures of his entire childhood. My heart. And we have My no heart. idea. I there might be more. We don't know. And we'll probably never have access to them if they if. If they do have them, we won't have access to them. Or there's a big possibility because his mother is very faithful that she yeah. probably did throw them out. And that's heartbreaking too. Yes. I've heard rumors <sighs> that some members of the family have some of these pictures still. And I, I don't hope know. so. I don't know if we'll ever see them or if we'll get our hands on them. But yeah, it's it's hard to get any pictures. So I'm glad that all of the ones you have today weren't thrown away or burned as so many of the other pictures were, which when we get to that part of your story, you can explain yeah. a little bit more on why people would do that. But Absolutely. Um, so the ceremony part for their wedding, they, it was very, um, it was a happy time. It was very involved. A lot of the family, my mom's side of the family, a lot of brothers and sisters and, you know, moms and their kids and everybody they had a big reception and I have those photos of them when they got to That's have amazing. their after yeah. <laughs> celebration. And I'm really happy that I, that I got to keep them and I keep them in a safe place because Good. you know. Good. That's so special to, to have those still and to have those memories and know that things at one time were very joyful and happy within the FLDS community. Do, were you, the things we take for granted. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Were you born before your father married his second wife? Yes, I was born in 82. Okay. And so my second mom was married in 89, 88 or 89, I can't remember. Okay. Okay, so a while 80, after. Yeah, I wasn't, I was actually around the, within a year's time, of me going to first grade. I went to first grade in 89 and she was already established in our family, but not for very long. I can't remember exactly. I'm, I'm going to roll with 89 that she was married. Works for me. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So she basically was in my life for considerable amount of my, yeah. my upbringing. Anyway, she helped raise me. Was that something you were excited for to have another mother come into the family or since you were kind of old enough to remember it, how did that make you feel having another mother? And I was super excited. <laughs> my, my mom, I've had a little conversation with her over the time, over my life and just kind of curious. It was kind of one of those things where in the culture, some of those questions were just kind of very 
unsure if you could ask mm. or if it was something that would be shared or, you know, that's just something that you just don't ask. I don't know. There was a lot of questions within me that if, should I ask? Is it something I need to know? I vividly remember the ceremony. So it actually took place in our own home, like in oh. our front room. So the prophet at the time was Rulin Jeffs. Uh -huh. And he and a whole bunch of people showed up and crammed everybody in that one room. And I actually have pictures of, I got to hold my second mom's hand while she was marrying my dad. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Interesting. So I, I was just thrilled with having her. Like she was a new person. She was beautiful. I loved her. I loved people anyway. I was a people person. I just, at that time, I just remember just feeling like I'm grateful that I got a good experience because some people didn't. Right. It, it yeah. was, you know, the secrecy. Like I got to experience the, the openness or at least a little bit more casual setting rather than this big you know secrecy and do it quick and don't right. talk about it and nobody's there and yeah so yeah that's yeah. how most of the experiences that i knew of and was around for were they're very secretive all of a sudden mm -hmm. the new person was getting married and and you yeah. didn't really know until they were already married and so it's very good and it's a good reminder for a lot of people, too, that the FLDS was not always uh, the way that it was when Warren took over. It was very much more open, you know, yep. even like you mentioned, your dad was raised in, a, in New Mexico, you know, so the mm -hmm. community was more spread out and intertwined with the outside world. And then before yeah. it became so secretive and, and big walls and all that. Yeah, for sure. My dad had a lot of um, Gentile experience, like perspective. He lived it. He went to school, public school. And like I have all of his memorabilia, like his report cards and his school pictures and his, I have a lot of his portfolio of his life. I was actually going to put together a, a, a life history book for him or at wow. least for the family something that was established i have i don't know if very many people know this <laughs> i came in contact in with my dad's stuff at one time because he needed somewhere safe for his personal belongings to go because he was um sent away on a repentance mission anyway oh, we'll get yeah. we'll to get that, to that. But yes. i have his dad's so his dad was theral doc stater and he is the dad of all the doc staters mm. here in this community. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So he's kind of the founding father of all of that genealogy well, history. Do, do you know, was he a convert to the FLDS or? I believe so. He, I, I think he came from Idaho. Okay. Okay. So maybe I, he was a, sure, maybe he was a part of the mainstream LDS church and then converted to the FLDS possibly, or maybe he just became, maybe he was one of the founding FLDS leaders. I, I'm, it's hard to keep everyone from, straight, but yeah, I thinking about it, that actually rings some bells mm -hmm. about that side of history for him of where he came from. I think he was part of the LDS okay. and then converted sad that I don't just have confidence in knowing that I can say yes or no. I don't know. No, problem. <laughs> no that's fine. But I bet your grandpa's been with friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. <laughs> but I have his personal traveling 
pocket expenditure book. So a little tiny pocketbook that he would keep in his front pocket where they, back then when they would travel, they would write down their expenditures, kind of like a little checkbook of the things that they spent things mm. on in his own handwriting and it's right. all tattered and everything. It's kind of cool. Wow. That is cool to have wow. those type of, yeah, that type of memorabilia is, I feel like so His handwriting rare. is just gorgeous. I'm like, yeah. I always get thrilled by seeing that kind of history and that type of memorabilia and stuff that, you know, just kind of feels a little bit one more piece to tie yourself to that person that I never knew, you know? Right. Yeah. And so interesting to have that kind of document document where, you know, you see kind of what he was up to, right? A little bit. Yeah. You can see what he spent it on and how much it costs. Like yeah. it just gives you a little insight into his world of what it looked like then. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Yeah. That's really I like, cool. I like that a lot. So after your parents were married and you had the second wife, you, were you still in Short Creek for most of your upbringing? So we were still in Salt Lake. So I was actually, so oh. I was born in the community in Short Creek, Hilldale. Okay. And my mom just came down long enough to have me because that's where the midwife was. Oh, and that's okay. why Aunt Lydia here with Uncle Fred's family, that's where all the babies were born. And that's where she was born. That's where the whole community was born. Yeah. <laughs> and so she felt familiar with that. And that's where she had a lot of her kids. Actually, I think she, no, back up. She had some of them here and some of them up north. Interesting. I was going to say, I know that, I know that most of the community would have their babies at Hilldale, as they called it, or under the direction of Aunt Lydia. Yeah. Uh, and she, uh, Aunt Lydia was Uncle Fred's wife and Uncle Fred was the Bishop of Short yes. Creek. But yes. I didn't, I did not realize that people would come from Northern Utah, Salt Lake area down to Short Creek to have their babies. That's something I wasn't aware of. It was quite, of. quite common for them to do that just because that was just another connection, another piece and part to the community. Mm -hmm. It was another service that was offered and you know, the way they handled the women when they had their babies and the way they were treated. And, you know, it, I'm really grateful that I got to have that experience there going back and forth to mainstream hospital to the, to the clinic is like, or Hildale, we used to call it the clinic. But anyway, I'm really glad that I got to have that experience to know like what that kind of culture and environment was like, and kind of get a, a little understanding of what previous women went through and what that was like, you know, to have a essentially an in-home birth yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very, well, obviously there were a lot of children being born all the time in the mm -hmm. FLDS. And yeah. so the, the trip to the clinic or the trip to Healdale to, to have those babies was very common, even within one family. And right. so I don't know if, if this would be the same for you, but in my young teenager childhood mind, I, I looked at Aunt Lydia as this goddess that was that was this most well, amazing person was, on earth, <laughs> bringing all the babies into bringing the world. all the babies into the world. Yeah, she was yeah. very educated. She was very respected. She understood a lot, but she I felt like she was highly inspired. A very like unique person, mm. um, one that had that life mission. Obviously, there was that was what she was meant to do, and she did it graciously. She did it very respectfully. She knew how to handle very tough situations. Mm. She was just very inspired and a lot of women entrusted her. 
to, yeah. you know, help them with a very important part of life. So yeah. Yeah. what better way to do that? <laughs> so back to Salt Lake. So you were actually raised in, was it Salt Lake City or a different place up there? No, um, no, in Sandy. I mean, yeah, Sandy. Salt Lake essentially. But okay. we we had a home in Sandy. Um, the home was my grandma's home, my dad's mom. So she moved from Albuquerque to Sandy, had a home there. And my mom and dad moved in the upper floor and my grandma lived in the basement. Okay. And so I was raised till I think the year 1990 is when we moved 89 or 90. We moved to a new home because we had two moms and four kids and three bedrooms. (laughs) You do the math. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that there was a huge FLDS congregation or group living in northern Utah for the longest time. Uh, yeah. So I'm glad that we're talking to someone from that location because I never experienced that. So can you tell us? That was normal for me. Yeah. Okay. And do you know, was the Salt Lake, Sandy, Utah group, was it there before the Short Creek area or did they go from Short Creek up to Northern Utah? Do you happen to know that? I don't know. I mean, even at the time of the raid, so back in the fifties, there were some people living in Salt Lake. They did have people located there, but over time, a lot more people kind of, they were spread out through the whole Valley. Um, I had cousins that lived across the Valley and we had a lot, I mean, a lot of childhood memories with them and a lot of good memories, actually. I f- feel pretty grateful that I can say my childhood was, I don't know. I don't know that I'd ever want anything different than the way I was raised then. It was just, even though we were living in the Gentile world, you could say, it, of the belief then that we had a very good life. We were raised very well. We had nice things. We had clean communities, um, you know, like in our neighborhoods and stuff that we lived in, like even back in the eighties, it, I don't know. I didn't ever feel unsafe where I was living. I don't ever remember having an unsafe memory in the places that we lived. Good. Good. That's awesome. Did you all still like have the same dress code and wear the same clothing, even though you were around so many other Gentiles compared to like being in the short Creek community, everybody's dressing alike, right? Did you still have that? Yeah. Well, of course, it wasn't as strict as it got to be (laughs) in the recent of the culture or the the religion. But yeah, there was a lot of modesty. Absolutely. There was a lot of, I mean, I I look back and go, wow, mom, that was (laughs) not as modest as it is today. Like, I remember growing up with, um, we didn't have like full underwear. Like, there, that wasn't implied to the community until like I was in first grade. I just remember that's a very strong timeline of a lot of things that changed in the community. Yeah. At that time, underwear was like the long underwear. So your garment mm-hmm. that went your neck to your ankles, to your wrists were kind of being um, tested and figured out on patterning patterns, sizes and all of that. And the only kind of, Oh, the worst thing about it. They only had one kind of fabric and I hated it so bad. Oh. <laughs> they had this cotton 
scratchy, nasty. Yeah. <laughs> I hated them. Never, never, never liked them ever. Wow. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Do, so do you happen to know before? Because my whole life, I only ever remember having to wear those garments. I, I never had any other options. Was Do you know before those garments came around, were people wearing what everyone would consider normal underwear? So basically i just remember what i was um given to wear or you know help me get dressed with when i was younger because i was just you know not even in first grade yet so i remember just normal underwear t-shirts and really <laughs> under things yeah so uh like melissa's question you know, like what was your clothing like like i remember going to school or even after school like wearing like knee highs like socks that went up to my knees and shoes mm -hmm. like so there was parts of skin that was not necessarily showing but it wasn't covered like like a layer of clothing like long underwear the garment part we didn't wear short sleeves we wore long sleeves we didn't have to have collars like we wore jumpers and and knit clothing and you know different textures but that slowly became cut off and yeah. changed and very restricted and colors. I remember hearing you guys previously talk about like colors, like when colors became a big, big deal, like the color red. Mm -hmm. I remember my dad coming home one day and saying, we've got this requirement now. I want everybody to go through the home and pull all the clothing, all of the garments that you have, everything that has the color red. And my mom had just, this is why it was really hard for me. I had just gotten a dress made. My mom had made me this dress with little red hearts all oh, over it. And no. it was very well sewn. My mom was, a, I put her to the standard, a really good seamstress. And she did, I just love this dress. And I think I got to wear it like maybe twice. And oh. we had to throw it in a big garbage bag. All the oh. things, toys and my dad's ties and hair things. And I mean, everything that even just had that color red in it, it was disposed of. I don't even know what they did with it. I don't even know. Wow. That's so, so hard as a little girl. So my sad. Like, I remember crying at my mom and I just seeing that look on her face, like, well, this is what we're asked to do. And today, I just want to say all kinds of things about it. Mm -hmm. But looking back, I just, you know, thinking about that little girl that wanted that dress so bad. Uh, just how it was. And I couldn't do anything about it. It's just the way it's wow. going to be. It is what it is. That's so tough. And I, I imagine that there was some what they would consider a good reason for it. Did they explain to you at that young age why you weren't allowed to have red? I don't remember as a young girl being told because I didn't ask why mm. we didn't ask why. You weren't and allowed. if we did, we got reprimanded for asking why right. it was just because I said, or just because we were asked or we don't ask why, you know, we, we don't ask questions. But later on, I, f I learned as an adult, probably not until after I started having kids really understanding, like, what was the reason for that? Like, I'm not asking why challenging it. I just want to understand. I just want to understand the reason why mm -hmm. find out that it was a sacred color. It was one that was being held as a high level of glory 
that at the coming of Christ, you know, we would have, he would come, he would show up in a red robe mm -hmm. and that was a color of respect. And we just, we don't disrespect that while we're here. We don't take it. It's kind of like saying the name in vain, you know, the Lord's name in vain of, you just don't, you just don't devil in it. You just, <laughs> you yeah. leave it alone. Right. So right. I was just like, why does that doesn't even, okay, whatever. <laughs> that doesn't even make sense to me. I don't agree with it. At the time, I remember just that gut feeling of like, that is the most insane thing I've heard. Yeah. But I'm not going to oppose it. I'm not going to challenge it. I'm not going to say that's wrong. It was just like, like everybody else put it on a shelf. We had a lot put it of, right up there. Yeah. We put a lot of things on our shelves, didn't we? It got to the point Until where you couldn't see the shelf anymore. Exactly. It got to the point where, I mean, at least for me, I almost didn't even have a shelf anymore. I wasn't even. It was a out. mount. It was a big mountain. <laughs> just, it was just, you know, throw it over there. It doesn't matter. You wouldn't even, at least I wouldn't allow myself to question or think that it was wrong in any way because yeah. I, I assumed that it's what God wanted and that I might be punished, punished somehow if I right. disapproved or disagreed in any way. So it was just, okay, right. I'll keep sweet and do what I'm told. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's sad to see like in those situations where if there really was the reason of it being a sacred color, at least then, even at a young age, you can try to, even if it doesn't make sense, you can try to force yourself to make sense. You can have that cognitive dis dissonance, I think is what they call it, where you can try to say, yeah. oh, at least there's a reason, right? And then at least you can try, your mind can try to make sense of it. So the fact that they weren't even giving you like at least that. Something to go <laughs> off of. Something to try to hold on to ultimately is going to hurt the church just as much as what it's going to help them because getting nothing is way, I feel like, worse than getting at least something that you can try to make your mind come to terms with. Yeah. yeah. You kind of create your own story just to help yourself reason or process it, or yeah. even just try to have some grasping understanding of why. I yeah. mean, every child's going to ask why. Mm -hmm. And not every child, I believe, like growing up, it was children don't ask why. And I'm finding out, you know, <laughs> later on in life, <laughs> That why is what establishes your growth, your understanding. It expands your brain to having knowledge, to be able to reason within yourself to know where that goes rather than just say, put it on a shelf. Right. Mm -hmm. That's so much suppression, so much stuff you get to dig out later in life that nobody should have to dig that crap up later. It's yeah. just not even uh, so overbearing and it's sad to hear and feel and see and even know that I, to even understand that I know what that's like mm -hmm. to have my own stuff that I get to process and relive again and try to make sense or at least let it go. Right. It's a lot. So many things get yeah. piling up and, and so like you said, the most this episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party 
or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Frustrating thing is that there wasn't really a good reason for so many of these things. It could have been mm-hmm. as simple as Warren, for example, in some cases, just saw someone wearing red and thought that doesn't yeah. look, that doesn't look <laughs> right. You know what? New rule. No one gets to wear red. You know, something as simple as that and make it sound like it's coming from God and that it's something. A decision on a whim. Exactly. Just feeling it today. This is the commandment. Everybody say A. Yeah, exactly. And no votes. My vote supersedes everyone else's. Exactly. hundred (laughs) percent. He's like, all right, we're going to put this to a vote, but I'm the only one that can vote. Thank you very much. Please leave. That was kind of the way it was. (laughs) <laughs> but it affected us forever, right? I mean, today, even to this oh. day, and probably even more so for you, if I'm going to reach out for my red shirt, I can't put a red shirt on without thinking I am not supposed to be wearing this. And then yeah. I'm like, wait, get out of that mindset. I'm good, right? Well, it's a little ironic because that's my favorite color. <laughs> See my curtain right there? That's awesome. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> now, yeah. red essentially is my favorite color, and it's not out of – I've had to work myself, work through that process of how it feels comfortable with me because throughout a majority of my lifetime or upbringing, that belief system was being built and based off of these (laughs) unnatural understandings of like, these don't make sense. And why, if if a child was given the reason the Lord is going to come at this certain, you know, later on, um, and he's going to show up in a red cape. (laughs) Right. I think a child could probably at least process some of that Uh rather than just be like, don't worry about it. But I've kind of evolved around that mindset and that belief system of it's not a negative thing. It's just a color. It's just a color and it's okay. And I give myself permission to like that color if I choose to like that color. And it's actually been a very empowering color because it has a lot of empowering meaning behind it of knowing not out of that out of spite you know how people could take it out of i just embrace it and just say i choose to like red because i like red it's not just because someone told me i shouldn't or can't or won't i like the color red i never was allowed to like it right even there was a point in time where i saw some families were allowing the children to color with crayons the color red were thrown away They were taken out of the rainbow. Like that's how extreme they got. And I'm like, that is the most insane. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Like you can't, you just stand there with your jaw to the floor going, I I don't even know what to do with that. I don't even know why that's even a thing. Yeah. There are so many things. Sam and I, a lot of times through our spiritual journey, even together outside of the FLDS, but even just together, the two of us, We've just come to terms of so many things are just choices. We're like mm-hmm. certain things don't hold morality. Not every single thing holds morality to it. It can just be a choice. Right. You know, right. some beverages are just beverages or <laughs> some colors. You know, in this case, a color can just be a color that you're choosing yep. from. It can just be a choice. It doesn't have to hold this moral good or bad. A color on its own cannot be good or bad. It's just like a it's color. Not- it's not going to decide if I go to heaven or not exactly. or if that's what I choose to believe. Mm-hmm. It's not going to decipher my afterlife if I choose the color red. 
How insane is that? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Something that I would like to point out as well is the colors, the crayons, the red crayons that you talked about that were thrown away. Mm -hmm. This and this type of thing happens well beyond the FLDS belief. But it seems that a rule comes out. The prophet, for example, says, OK, this is the way it is to be now. We don't wear the color red. And then there's this thing that I like to call a spiritual competition amongst the members of the church. Oh, yes. Am I right? Where everyone oh. is trying to prove to everyone else that they're the most to righteous. To the extreme. To the extreme. So to I think the crayons, I don't think that was a, a direction from the leaders of the church. I think that was a family no. trying to be better than everyone else. There was this competition yes. of spirituality going on, and they threw away things here. Things weren't allowed there. And also, there. everyone's interpretation. Exactly. There were things that were said on the pulpit, and you would have 3,500 men that heard the same thing being told to teach and train their children and their families and their wives. And they would all hear something different. I mean, you take that into account of how many versions and how many extreme versions that went and right. where it grew from. Like, it's just a ripple effect that is just astronomical. And that's where you go really from religions turning into like more cultural things that happens so yeah. much within the LDS, within the mainstream LDS, you know, people will say, Oh, it's so different in Utah. And you do have that culture war, not war, but like mm -hmm. that comp that culture competition mm -hmm. between each other, you know, where people who are LDS outside of Utah will be like, y'all are crazy over there. Like, why aren't you drinking a <laughs> Coke? And that says nowhere in the word of wisdom that you can't have a Coke. And here they're like, well, the only thing that makes sense is that this means caffeine. And then we're going to make sure that our family doesn't yep. need caffeine. So that we're more righteous than those who are just not drinking the alcohol and the tea. You know, it, it ends up becoming, you end up with so much church culture that spreads into the lives of everybody. And then it does feel like it turns its way into doctrine like with an unspoken, but then later they can always, you can always denounce that, right? Like, well, that wasn't actually what we said. Right. You know, even though the culture is really, is very real in small communities or oh, within yeah. smaller religions, yeah. the culture is almost as important as the doctrine at some points. So Elise, you've mentioned uh, several different times now, uh, when you were in first grade, this happened about first grade, this happened. So when you say first grade, what was school like for you in Northern Utah? I loved school. I mean, it was, I loved to learn. I loved my peers. It was exciting to me. I loved to learn all the things that teachers were teaching. I don't know. I was a child being invested. Did you guys get to go to public school in Northern Utah? Because no. like in Short Creek, Sam had to be homeschooled. They right. shut down the schools by the time he was going to school. Age. Yeah, sorry. Um, so the school was the Jeff's Academy called Alta Academy. So yes, it was on the, the compound of Roland Jeff's home um, where his family was raised for a while. And then they built another home was built on the same property for him and his family. So that okay. big school house was essentially the meeting house. It was the labor and delivery. It was the school. It had a lot oh, wow. of... It was their cellar. It had a baptismal font in the basement. Oh, like wow. it was, there was a lot in that building. So a lot of memories, a lot of memories. How many children went to school there? Oh gosh, I don't even know. 
several hundred. Was it like a very big community? Like up there, I mean, when I think of Short Creek, we know that like at the most there was about 10,000 members mm -hmm. and a lot of them were in Short Creek at the same yeah. time. How many members do you think there were in Northern Utah when you were being raised? In there, there must have been that. a couple of thousand probably. Oh, okay. I mean, so it's pretty large then. A few thousand. I mean, essentially, you know, families all, you know, counted for all the heads. But mm -hmm. as far as the student body, you know, there was quite a few hundred. You know, there was oh, wow. uh, first grade to 12th grade. So they had enough students to fill like a normal size classroom was eight students up to, I don't know, in the teens, probably 15 students per class. Wow, okay. I remember. So I have actually a, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just going to pull it up, but I have this. Oh Whoa, my word. Look at that. So what was that? What, what is so that? So this is the yearbook. Uh, oh my the word. last year that I went to school and I'll show you a picture really quick. Flipped, but here was my class. No oh, way. And I'm right here. See me being a rebel? Have my sleeves oh, up? Sleeves rolled up. <laughs> they didn't tell me to, to push them down. It. I remember my underwear was in the way, and so I had my sleeves up because I was trying to fix it, wow. and nobody told me to fix it. Make, makes you look like a rebel from way back then. <laughs> anyway, yeah. But that, those dresses are a lot different than what oh, you typically think of in short that freak. Like, was how I, I dressed like when I was growing up. Yeah, that's like Easter dresses. They were homemade. All the dresses were homemade. <laughs> Everything was hand sewn. Yeah. Just like I'm sure Sam remembers all of the oh, yeah. <laughs> sewing oh, projects yeah. I used to we wear had. Shirts. Yeah. Yeah, I used to wear shirts and sometimes pants that my mother or one of my sisters would make. I never did get to put those pants on my boys later on when they had the jeans that they made. Those were very nicely uh -huh. made, but I did never get those. But growing up, my mom bought the shirts and pants for the boys and they had, but they were modest. You know, they had to have certain colors, patterns. Was the hair as serious? Like having it in a specific braid was the poofa thing no. up there or was that a cultural thing to the, the poof creek? didn't happen until we, until we moved to the creek and that, and that was like okay. probably the later nineties, early two thousands when that started becoming a, <laughs> a more common, normal thing. One of one of those Jeff's wives started it, and, and everyone in the community wanted to follow suit. It sounds like I tried to I imagine that's where it came from because at the Alta Academy there was a home ex class, and that was very strictly like hands on learning all the things like learning how to tat, learning how to sew, learning how to um, change a light bulb, learning. Uh, how to change a tire, learning how to slaughter a cow, learning how to, oh. <laughs> those things were more privately done away from the, on another corner of the, the lot or the, the area, mm -hmm. the grounds of the school away from the mm -hmm. kids that would have been traumatized. They were, they were careful. <sighs> they had, I don't know if you remember D Jessup. <laughs> he yes. would come oh, up yes, there and teach like survival skills to people and learn how uh -huh. they did. They dressed a lot of animals. They, you know, had hands on learning how to take care of our own meat, how to process it and what to do with it and how to do it in a 
priesthood way, you know, like how to handle the animal and (laughs) how you, you know, I believe, you know, there's humane ways of doing it. And I appreciate that, but it was, Mm -hmm. it was handled in a priesthood. (laughs) Always with the the priesthood stuff. It needs to be done. Exactly. Isn't that so interesting? They tried to involve the priesthood in every aspect of everything that we did. Yeah. Yeah. So, D. Jessup, just you, you brought mm-hmm. him up. He's the one that was also in charge of the zoo yeah. in Short Creek. Is Actually, that right? Yes. Yes, the same. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My grandma, okay. I mean, it's a little off topic, but because I'm remembering, I think it's a unique part of my story is that my grandma was known as the bird lady. Her name was Lou Jean Dockstater. She actually was a okay. heavy smoker, believe it or not. Interesting. Oh. So. <laughs> And how did the church feel about that? She just got away with it. Don't ask me how. <laughs> wow. That must have been before Warren was in oh, charge. <laughs> yes. She actually did quit smoking before she passed away. But um, she smoked, oh, okay. I think, 45 years of her life. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, so this little tidbit. Um, so she was a, a bird lover. She, I grew up with her having always parrot. And she... He was kind of mean. <laughs> he wasn't very nice. <laughs> and it was just always something I connect with my grandma. And she loved him. And his name was Paco. And actually, believe, uh, now that I'm thinking about this, he came from Warren. Really? How did that work? No wonder he was mean. <laughs> And now I'm thinking about this. Holy cow. How did these all these angles tie into my family? <laughs> um, oh, man. She she took him in and yeah, and loved him. And wow. anyway, so she just had a fondness for birds and animals in general. And when we moved down here to the Colorado City Hilldale community, the zoo was being established and it was being put together. The Bishop Uncle Fred had a big motion to have some community entertainment and something that the community could enjoy. And so he mm-hmm. told Dee to, you know, help him with this. I don't know the whole story. I'm just interpreting this part. He was the head leader of organizing it because he was the one handling the animals, taking care of them. And my grandma was in charge of the birdhouse. So if you remember, they had that established cages with all the birds. And growing up, Uh we would go and help my grandma go feed the birds. We would enter, like, clean the cages, feed the birds, clean the dishes, engage with them. And anyway, so she's a part of the community where she, she, until the zoo was taken apart, she, it was it almost broke her heart to have to let go of those animals because that was oh, something that she absolutely put her heart and soul into and she absolutely loved wow. them and it was taken away. But anyway, so that's part of the community of, of a little history wow. of my grandma. Yeah. I very much enjoyed and loved to visit yeah. the bird cages and other parts of the zoo as well. But I very much remember going and, and trying to talk to the parrots yeah. And a lot of them and, would talk and she taught know. them how, and there was a lot of them that she oh, engaged really? with. And, and I remember a lot of their names and like, I don't know, it's, it's quite a, a an endearing, soft hearted memory of something yeah. that my kids will never experience. But. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's unfortunate. It would be very amazing if at some point Short Creek could bring back something like that. It would be like a different world for sure, but those people aren't right, here that had right. their their investment or at least their intentions are like they're invested. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So in your school at Alta Academy, I just a side note here, when it comes to Alta Academy, it was one of those things that me as a young boy going to homeschool, we looked at the people that attended Alta Academy as these, I don't know, superior beings because <laughs> you attended the you attended the Jeff's school yep. and you got such a better education and all of these things because <laughs> right. Well and you were promised as a student going to Alta Academy, if I'm not mistaken, that you were getting a superior oh, uh the type Jeff's of mentality. Just put it out there. Just tell you that if you were exactly. if you were around that group, then you had the you had a little bit of hierarchy. I don't know. You had the involvement of like yep. I remember moving down, and I people would ask, well, "Where did you go to school?" And I'd say, and it just was normal for me. And they would just be like, "Oh, like oh." Uh-huh. <laughs> Teach me your ways. Like, it's just the school, <laughs> you know, we're normal kids. Like. Yeah. yeah. But, but just so you know, and it sounds like you did experience that from other people, yeah. from us not attending Alta Academy, we definitely looked at it as, oh, I wouldn't even qualify for such an amazing I school. didn't realize and now how I, people felt about it that way. Yeah. I, to me, it was completely yeah. normal. I didn't feel superior. I didn't feel above anybody else. Looking back now, I can see how that was leading up to a point of like when you get into junior high, high school time when they really drill it in your brain of where you are going and what you're going to be doing and how you're going to live Mm -hmm. and who you're going to become. As a child, you're just learning all the bases so that when you get there, then they can start drilling you in. So I didn't really get to experience the level of you know put you on this pedestal or like you were someone special i realize now thinking you know i really did have a good actually were there were there kids in the community in northern utah that didn't go to alta academy or was it if you're in the community in northern utah you automatically just went there or was there like a separation of i don't want to say classes but was there like a separation of um, groups of people within the community and not Utah. that I uh, recall um, a lot of people that sent their kids to school. They went to church there. So there was a lot of involvement. Okay. I don't know of anybody that went to a public school while other siblings went to Alta Academy. I personally don't know of any. Okay. okay. So in school, in the Alta Academy, obviously within the FLDS church from the moment I was born. And it sounds like probably since the moment you were born, it was all about keeping the boys and girls separate. Uh, we weren't allowed to date. We weren't allowed to look at uh, the opposite sex. It was very much everything was arranged as far as marriage goes. What was it like in the school dynamic? Were they separating the boys and girls in the classes or how did that work? In the younger grades, they just had them co-ed. They were boy and okay. girls. In the later years and looking back at like, remembering like how the classes were like there were specific boy classes that had you know like they learned certain skills that were mainly about men or things that they would typically do but those were older grades the younger grades like even in junior high i remember when i by the time i got to fifth grade 
they started segregating a lot more. And I realize now looking back that that's kind of when things started shifting when they, they had another building that was built across the, um, did you ever go experience that up there? Did you ever go to that park, the parking lot or see the building at I, all? I never did. Okay. The whole group, the Northern Utah group, group <laughs> of uh, FLDS people were never, I was never in any way connected. contacted, connected <laughs> to that at all. It was always in Short Creek and Hilldale. Interesting. Uh, I do remember seeing new people, but those people came from the creek. And they were high schoolers. It was like they were there for their senior year or because they needed like another family or a an aunt or an uncle was helping that teenager who needed a little extra TLC and needed to get out of the community was being difficult. Or the scenario was that they just wanted to go to the Alta Academy school. They wanted to experience that and they had had to get special permission to be enrolled and be a part of the school itself. And there was quite a few that did that. Some of them didn't last very long. Hmm. Some of them graduated. And did they have, like, did you get a normal high school diploma? Like, was were they registered with the state? I or was it purely just a, like, I just wasn't sure if people left there with a high school diploma and, like, could go and get higher education or if they'd still have to go get a GED. There was a whole ceremony. And so... I would imagine that it was like a homeschool, like it probably was a legal, at least legible (laughs) document that claims, you know, like, like today, you know, you can have a homeschool diploma and, but it will only qualify for so much. A lot of rules and stuff have changed, but I don't know if they had to like register through the state, if they had to go like take an extra test with the state to say, I did indeed learn all of these things and I have officially learned up to 12th grade and then get an official document, you know, kind of like a marriage license (laughs) of saying now we're legally married. Exactly. (laughs) I don't, I don't know. I only went to fifth grade, first and fifth grade up there. So. Okay. While you were there, was Warren Jeffs already the principal of the school? Oh yeah. Okay. What was he like? As a kid, he was just, I didn't know him any different other than just being a guy. I, uh, well, I'll take that back. Our family had a lot to do with the Jeff's family, but in school, he was just a figure of authority because he was the principal. You know, you listen to authority. And so putting him in that generic space or like identifying who he is of where they stand, you didn't challenge him you listened and you followed and you learned and you did. So to me, he wasn't necessarily intimidating. I do remember liking him at one point because there wasn't anything negative for me to believe that he was a bad person or something that I should feel Mm -hmm. differently about him. He was just an authoritative figure. I see. Did that make it easier when he ended up becoming profit? Was it easier to no. <laughs> go into that, go into that space? Okay. No. I wasn't sure if I'm like, if it was like a, Oh, I'm happy. He's profit. I liked him no. as a principal. Or was I it- had my eyebrows raised. I had my questions. I was really shocked. I, I did not like when that happened, but you know, put it on yeah. the shelf. 
Right. Yeah. A lot of us didn't have enough knowledge to to not like it or to like it. We were so much kept in the dark. Yes. So when our parents said, this is what we're doing, then we said, oh, okay, that's what I'm doing as yeah. well. And so we just kind of followed suit. I was going to ask, we hear from, and a lot of our viewers will probably want to know this. We hear from a lot of other young girls that were going to Alta Academy that they felt now looking back, they felt that in a way Warren Jeffs was grooming them at a very young age. Did you see that or feel that at all now looking back? Oh yeah. And I would say just because of my experience that I had with him and I was going to get to that <laughs> of okay. he made a prime example of me publicly. Oh wow. So we actually only, uh, only, we only lived like five minutes away from the Roland Jeff's home there from the school um, in little Cottonwood Canyon. After my second mom was married, a few months later or a year, I don't know what the whole timeline is, but it wasn't very long. My dad started looking for a home because we needed, you know, both moms were really tired of taking turns sleeping on the couch every other night. So oh, no. <laughs> they had a dad room, a girl's bedroom and a boy's bedroom. And the mom shared every other night that bedroom. Interesting. I've never heard that. That would make only... it so much worse. Like you already know that your husband's <laughs> sleeping with another woman, but like if you get booted to the couch, what do you do? Is, what do you do? <sighs> oh my gosh. Should have thought wow. about that before they placed imagine. her in our family to see if we even had room. Oh, um, so we, we got a really nice home and that would be a dream home for me raising my kids. Absolutely beautiful. Loved that home. Mm -hmm. Totally gated in, beautiful yard, beautiful home. It was just very, very it was a magical place to grow up, honestly. Um, anyway, so wow. we lived five minutes away from a drive from the school. And my second mom ended up being a teacher there. She was an aide, I believe, before she got married or just before she got married. And so she was already established or involved in the school. And then, so after she came into our family, then she did a little bit more teaching aid and then she became a teacher later. So we had 10 students in the class. There was three boys and seven girls. And so in that year, it's kind of where they started transitioning the students into a lot more classes. So the fifth grade was a one class all day setting, learned everything. So all your subjects and everything you had one teacher all day. And they were starting to include like home ec classes. Like they had a cooking class and a little sewing class and they would bring in people on how to teach everybody how to like, tie a tie, you know, like on yourself and someone else and just learn all of these skills that we would need to know. Mm -hmm. The teacher was instructed by Warren to get our class and per put on a play. She and her sisters or her family, I later found out that they actually wrote the play. And my, oh, my, part in this play was a character of a, of a very rich person, a woman. And to play the part, I would need 
my costume to show that I was very rich. And so our class worked really hard at learning the whole play, like our parts. I had a main part in it. And so I took it seriously. It was very intimidating. Warren wanted putting the pieces together. I believe he wanted to just have the drama class of the high schoolers to experience kind of like going out and seeing an opera or a performance or, you know, like having just a little bit of um, camaraderie between all the students to kind of like get a little bit more comfortable with it and understand like what it's like to be in character, I guess. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, just experience. Yeah. So we worked really hard at this and we were getting to the point where we were going to start putting our costumes together and up in the upstairs, the main part of the building of the high school. So you had to go up another flight of stairs. There was a room where they kept all of the drama classes, costumes and all of their paraphernalia. And we were given permission to go up there and find what we needed to play our roles. And a piece in part to the story is for people to understand jewelry was not accepted. It wasn't permitted. And, you know, again, people having their own interpretation on vainness or worldly things. We don't adorn our bodies. We don't bring attention to ourselves. We're very plain. Right. We're very <laughs> clean. Yep. That's we're how, very. Yep. That's how I remember it. And I wasn't allowed as a girl. Like I didn't have bracelets. I didn't get rings. I didn't get playthings. I didn't get necklaces. Definitely no earrings. Absolutely not. And my part in this play, I was told that I had to have all of it. And they had this jewelry mm. box that had all this jewelry and they had these clip-on earrings, which the high schoolers played their parts and they wore all those kinds of things. It was, it's funny because that was, that was accepted. That was justified because, you know, you're playing a fictional part. It wasn't real right. life, mm -hmm. which is kind of odd to say because we weren't allowed to watch things, but we could sure act like it, you know, when it was permitted. Yeah, I did not in my gut, in my heart, I was absolutely petrified thinking of the idea of having to wear this jewelry because I was never allowed to. The, the most jewelry that you could even think of was a watch, like not even play rings, no bracelets, no necklaces. You just didn't have those things. So now all of a sudden it's okay. And now I should feel comfortable putting these things on that I'm not even allowed to even have in my possession let alone allowed to feel okay within and on myself. It, mm -hmm. I didn't feel comfortable and I was petrified of standing in front of people and feeling like I was already being judged and not even had worn it in front of anybody yet. So wearing these things in front of people publicly, like having all eyes on me, absolutely petrified me. Like, I did not like to ever be in the center of attention. And just the idea of having a main role in this play was already pressuring, was already enough, was just so overwhelming. So I was trying to find a way to convince myself, like, I'm being asked to do this. There's no way I can say no. I don't have a choice in saying I don't want this part. 
it's already decided. Everybody's already learning their lines. There's just no going back. So I'm just going to have to figure out a way to make this work. While we were choosing all of this and all the students were finding their costumes, the thought came to me, just take them home, try them on for a while, get comfortable with it and bring them back. Nobody will know. So I did. I snuck them home. And it was at the end of the day. So we were, everybody was rushing. There was a lot of activity going on. So nobody really noticed because there was a lot going on. The, the hallways were getting vacuumed. The students were closing up the classrooms. Everyone's cleaning up for the day. So there was a lot of commotion going on. So there wasn't really any eyes on me. And I was able to pull that off. And in my mind, I was thinking, this isn't wrong because <laughs> I'm going to have to wear them anyway. These are ones that I'm going to have to use. So I'll bring them back. <laughs> mm, well, that weekend, the next day would have been a Saturday because we had mon Monday through Friday, we had school. So on Saturday, I was outside and I went into my backpack and got this jewelry and went behind some bushes and trees and put them on because I didn't want to put them on in the house and have my mom see me or any of my siblings. And I kind of lost track of time knowing where I was, what I was doing. And my mom found me and she saw me. Uh. <sighs> the pit in my stomach. My mom was shocked. I don't really know what her like how she truly felt like, did she feel like completely disgusted with me? Was she just disappointed? Was she angry? She was shocked, obviously, because that was, we didn't have that stuff at home. So I must've gotten it from somewhere. And I told her where I got it. And she's like, why did you take it? And why are you wearing it? And I tried telling her, we're doing this play and I showed her the script and had my whole lines listed out my copies of the paper that had all of our lines highlighted and everything. And she was not buying it. And oh, wow. so she told my dad and he was a, well, I guess a part of the story is, is kind of detrimental to kind of, so I'm going to back up just a little bit. So my dad was part owner in a company. I don't know if you remember hearing the, the name Hydropack. Uh, it sounds familiar. Yes. That was in Northern Utah. So it was right? in, in Salt Lake. The, yes. The, the, the mm -hmm. company. And yes, they worked uh -huh. with Thiokol. And they, okay. they um, manufactured the O-rings for NASA. Oh, yes. And yes. so my dad and two of Warren's brothers, Brian Jeffs and Wallace Jeffs and my dad, all had a three part ownership in this company. And it was like huh. a, um, a contract that was only for so many years. And they had employees there that worked at this building and they had high cleanliness room. Like they had, like they had to wear all their gear, like all of their garb on. And they had these little, uh, magnifying glasses and they would stitch together the spliced, like by the tiniest little tiny micro slice and assemble these O-rings. And then they would have them shipped and inspected through several different degrees um, of, 
of inspecting and they had to keep him very, very clean and very sanitary. And then they would ship him off to NASA and they would put him on their space rockets. Well, so uh-huh. a piece to this is it's another little part of history. You remember the Challenger? Mm-hmm. The, the, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Sorry. So I thought you were, yes. Uh-huh. In 86, when that happened, my dad was in the serious hot seat. And because oh. they were wanting to blame the O-rings for being deflective or defective, excuse me. Oh, interesting. And oh, they wanted to blame him for the explosion? Well, their company, yeah. And he, but he was the spokesperson for the company. And he was under some serious pressure. I don't remember a lot of conversations, like words, like remembering what they were saying. I just remember the seriousness in the home. Like us kids were not allowed to be extra silly, loud. We weren't allowed to go out and play very much. Like we, it was like, you sit down, you be quiet. There's a lot of stress in this house. That it was, I remember as a kid that that was, like four and a half, five years old, whatever it was. So that's part of. Wow. So my dad was working at Hydropack and it was across the valley. So when my mom found out, he had a lot of very important meetings. He was a very important person talking with very important people. And so he would travel and fly all over the United States for meetings and all kinds of things for business. So his time was very valuable. And so when, when my mom found me with this jewelry and telling me that she's going to have to tell my dad, I was just Mm -hmm. like, no, this is not going to go well. So she tells him. And then, uh, I was, I don't remember what the punishment was over the weekend, but I had some kind of punishment that I had to go without dinner or something like that. That was kind of a common thing uh, as a punishment that, you know, go to your room. Mm-hmm. Chores were not something that right. I that I necessarily had to do. It was mostly just go to your room. And a lot of times the punishment was go without a meal. Anyway, I didn't feel like eating anyway because my stomach was absolutely nuts and I was so stressed and overwhelmed. And I was just worried about what was going to happen with all of this. And my dad came home. They talked. My mom and dad talked. Then my mom told me that on Monday, I would have to meet with the principal, Warren, and my dad would come. And I was given some explanation and a little bit of shaming and guilt of how much pressure my dad was under at the time. This wasn't at the time of the challenger, of course. I'm just saying like his job, there was a lot going on that he was very busy with. And so For him to have to take time off just for me was a big deal, Mm. was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just to put into perspective here, you know, your dad had this really important Mm -hmm. job that he was doing and very busy, but even I would say for most people in the FLDS and not, not to mention the fact that you had to meet Warren Jeffs, the principal about this, but most people, children, were terrified to have to be called to talk to your father. Oh, right? absolutely. It was just something we were, uh, we were afraid your parents of were called in in almost every, that home. was a big deal. And uh-huh. I was one of those kids. Right. That I wasn't a problem kid. I had never had to be sent to the principal's office. Like first through fifth mm-hmm. grade. This is the first time that I've had to be put in that hot seat. I hated to be 
the center of it. I hated to be corrected. I mean, it just was hard for me that, mm-hmm. you know, and I knew that essentially on some level I are looking back now when I made the decision to even take the jewelry, I knew it was wrong, but I, in my mind <laughs> to convince myself, just trying to still do what I was being asked to do and have it be okay. That was enough to convince me to do it. I mean, I'm not saying that taking things is right. It wasn't okay, but there was a lot of pressure on me to have to figure out how to feel comfortable with this because I'm judged when being told, no, you can't have it or use it, or it's not going to be in your life, but now it's okay. And now all of a sudden I'm supposed to be comfortable with this. Like I'm being told like Mm -hmm. you're, you're a bad person for wearing these because you know, that's just not who we are, but now it's okay. Yeah. Well, and you have to remember just put into perspective too. Fifth grade is what? 10 years old. I was 12. Oh, you're Mm -hmm. 12. Okay. Yeah. That's still just so young too, that the idea of, Oh, I'm going to, take this and I'm going to bring it back. I feel like at 12 years old, I didn't like, want it. I had, I didn't want anything to do with it, honestly, but I felt like yeah, I was being but 12 forced. Is still just so young. Yes. Very young. Yeah. And 12, 12 years old is just so young to be asked of something that's going to make you so uncomfortable. Like you said, the older kids. Yeah. By the time you're 16, 17 in high school, you have a different level of what's okay mm-hmm. and what's not. And it's okay to just and maturity. Act, so to even have that yeah. be asked. Yeah. But at 12, you're just so young to be put in a situation it's, like it's, that. Yeah. It's yeah. so hard to imagine from someone that's never been a part of the FLDS to understand why it was such a big deal mm-hmm. for you. But that just goes to show how drilled into our mm-hmm. brains, your appearance, the importance of your appearance, appearance was. And It was just one of those things that you not only would you have to wear these things that you thought were wicked and that that you felt uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with, but you would have to do that in front of who knows how many people as well that, you know, would be looking at you thinking, oh, look how wicked she looks because she's wearing these awful things that we're not allowed to do. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to understand, but I know where you're coming from. I understand why it was such a big deal. Very unsafe and feeling very out of control. Um, not feeling supported, not being heard, not being understood, not even given a line of at least compassion or empathy to say to the parent or to the the principal anyways, you know, even to that level of saying you're requiring, okay, the prophet too, you're requiring everyone to do these things, but then justifying, it's like such a hypocrite way of going about it. And expecting children to trust at the same time, the level of justification, it just baffles my mind looking back and thinking about all of the experiences and little things that happen. It's going, how is that even okay? I mean, it's okay today, but it's not tomorrow. Um, how, How does that compute? How does that reason? How do you live that way and feel authentic and feel okay about feeling safe in that i i don't i never did yeah how did that meeting go with warren and your father 